Mets fans, prepare yourselves to get Metsmerized! Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Get Metsmerized podcast presented as always by MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm your host, Sal Manzo, joined as always by my co-host and MMO executive editor, Mike Mayer. And we're joined once again by SMY Mets writer, Jacob Resnick. Jacob, how are we doing today? It's great. Great to uh, be back so soon. I was uh, planning on, on my next appearance being... Uh... I don't know, maybe a few months, a couple of years, but uh, it's only took a couple of weeks. Glad, glad to be back. Well, it's amazing what we can do, you know, with the budget. Uh, we pay all our guests, you know, a large lump sum to be on here. We're just glad Mike, you know, pulls out of his pocket for that. <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously both of you over the last week or so put out your prospects list for the Mets. Uh, we're going to talk about that, get dive into it. But before we do, obviously, more lockout stuff. Um, we have had the MLB and MLBPA meet over the last week. There's been some talks um, trying to get the government to come in and be a mediator. Um, not a lot of progress going on. Uh, players have been, you know, voicing their displeasure now on social media about, you know, the MLB side and the commissioner um, and what they've been doing with all throughout this process. And so, Mike, I just wanted you to start by just updating what, what's been going on the last week and, and where we stand at this point. Yeah, like you said, the owners decided that they were going to ask for a federal mediation to um, try to get the deal done. That can only happen if the players decide that they want to do that, too. And about a day later, the players decided they didn't want to do that. It feels like we're stuck in a tailspin right now. And then once the players announced that yesterday, you had a lot of guys, including Max Scherzer, put out tweets um, talking about what they're looking for and the fact that the owners looking for mediation is just another step in them doing nothing. They haven't done anything to this point. The owners haven't since they decided to start the lockout. The players have pushed on a couple of things. They've lowered the minimum they were looking for. They agreed to the service time war stuff that the owners were looking for too. They got off getting to free agency sooner. Um, yeah, the, the players have been willing to at least negotiate to this point. What we've seen from the owners is they said they were doing a lockout to initiate conversations and then didn't initiate any conversation for 42 days. And then when they did, had no interest in actually hearing the player's side. And then decided they wanted to get the federal government involved. So, I mean, we'll, we'll just go right with Scherzer because he's the first one that kind of tweeted yesterday to start. And what he said was, we want a system where threshold and penalties don't function as caps, allows young players to realize more of their market value, make service time manipulation a thing of the past, and eliminate tanking as a winning strategy. And then you had a bunch of other guys across Major League Baseball kind of echo that thought. And you had other players using the hashtag at the table that the players um, are willing. They, they're the ones that have been at the table trying to negotiate, despite the owners, even when they have decided to show up, really not being open to anything. Uh, yeah, so we're, we'll have to see what ends 
up happening next because um, I think the owners are really hoping the mediation was going to happen because that that takes all the pressure off of them and puts it on to the mediator. And that's exactly why the owners tried to do this. So, yeah, uh, the players are all stepping up now. You saw yesterday just a flood of players tweeting out at the, with the hashtag at the table and talking about, I think the one thing they did a really good job between Max Scherzer, um, Paul Seawald, Whit Merrifield, and there was a couple others was pointing out to fans and quote tweeting fans exactly what they're looking for. And they were being unified in their responses, um, which is basically everything that I just read from Max Scherzer's tweet. And I mean, you this has gone on long enough where I know, I know some fans are frustrated regardless, but you look at what Scherzer said and what Seawald said and Merrifield and the others and what they're looking for. And it's just, it's like, Oh yeah, all of this makes perfect sense. Like, yeah, this is stuff that should be, should be able to agree upon um, with some haggling of course, but it's, it's getting frustrating at this point. And I mean, we're obviously getting really close to where pitchers and catchers would be starting to show up. Yeah, it's and it's pretty amazing. Like you mentioned, Mike, the uh, the players who are interacting with fans on Twitter, which is not something that you see ever from those guys. Like, obviously, they have Twitter accounts and they I'm sure see their mentions, but they're they're able to, you know, tune that stuff out. Now they're uh, dipping into their mentions to, you know, promote uh their their unified uh you know voice and um and their plans and and stuff like that and uh it kind of reminds me of the the last uh players union uh and and league negotiations during the the shortened or leading up to the shortened 2020 season and and all of that um when it got to a certain point where all the players were just tweeting out like you know tell us when and and when and where we want to play and like that's clearly not their first strategy as a union to have all the players go public as they are. Um, But as we've seen now twice, when it gets to a certain point, like they have no choice. Um, And, you know, it's not like Rob Manfred has a Twitter account where where he's going and and tweeting his thoughts. So, well, he he is using John Heyman. So (laughs) right. Heyman and a couple others. Um, So, you know, it'll probably, if, you know, this continues, gets to a certain point where MLB realizes that they literally have no way to come out of this looking good um, because they don't really have a direct to the public line uh, other than, like you said, some reporters who are carrying water for them. So, yeah, it's it's frustrating. Like you said, it's, you know, I've been talking to a lot of my friends. I'm back at school now. I'm talking to a lot of my friends about how, like, this time of the year, uh, my last three years here at school, it's been the same, you know, in early to mid February where it starts to get to be that time again. And the weather starts to get a little nicer and you start breaking the gloves out on the quad and, and having a catch. And like, just the fact that we're not there. And, and, you know, we, we joke or me and my friends joke around all the time. We're like, rem- remember when baseball existed, when, when that was a thing. And now it's just, it's just depressing as a, a follower of the sport, not interested in a good way, but interested in a just kind of what happens uh moving forward even if they are able to resolve this because if this is the first lockout that uh cancels games in in baseball history they've only had strikes that cancel games Uh, if this is the first lockout that cancels games it, it certainly puts the 
decision makers in the sport at a in a spot where I guess they kind of have a say in where the the industry moves from here. Um, so it'll like I said, it'll be interesting to to keep following. Yeah, I mean, like Jacob's talking about, it's the owners that decided to do the lockout. It was their choice, and it would feel like crying wolf now if they miss games because of the lockout. And all they've told us for the last 18 months is all the money we lost because we didn't have games, a full schedule of games or all the money we lost because we didn't have full capacity at these stadiums. And now this is their chance for that. And like some other people have tweeted um, the best thing. I mean, right now they could still be on a path to getting ready for the season and having negotiations if the owners just didn't lock out. That was their decision to do this. They, the teams could be getting ready for pitchers and catchers and could be getting ready for spring training games and having these negotiations right now if that's what they chose to do. But the owners are the ones that chose to stop any type of baseball happening. So I, I think we're getting to a point now, thankfully, where – like the unifying yesterday we were talking about with the players. Um, I think you're finally starting to see more of the fans kind of come behind the player's side and realize that this really is the billionaire owners that are pushing this type of thing. That's, I mean, very potentially going to make it so the fan doesn't get to see a full season this year. Yeah. I mean, listen, we we've seen, kind of throughout everything now that the owners don't really care about the fans and, and what we, what, what our interests are um, clearly um, to, to all the points that you guys made. Um, you know, I think it's funny as far as with the lockout, Rob Manfred said that a lockout was the quickest way to a resolution was the quickest way to signing something. And uh, all we've seen is it seems like on the owner's side, just folks digging their heels in or kind of just these, you know, half baked meetings or whatever. I'm looking at, Uh, a tweet from Tim Healy, actually um, talking about how it's, you know, it's pretty wild how the players aren't even asking for that much. They want a minimum salary raise, which barely moves the needle of the team's budgets. Uh, And they want to try to, you know, win and win with their best players and players that are kind of earlier. They want to be compensated. You know, Max Scherzer said that more technically and a little bit better, obviously, you know, you know, being, um, you know, the head of the players union on that side, but I just, I don't know. It's very, very sad. Um, the owners want to concede nothing, uh, you know, just to get something move forward. And Mike, you brought up the point as far as how, you know, the last two seasons you had the COVID season with, you know, no fans. And last year, most stadiums, you know, weren't at full capacity. You had, you know, uh, fans in the stands, at, you know, till some point during the season. So, you know, it, it is, it's hard to cry, hard to cry poverty when you're the ones that are kind of making this happen. So, you know, I've said before, March 1st is my number. Um, or my date. I should say that if they don't get something done by then, I'm going to be nervous. And, uh, I'm, I'm getting more nervous, I guess. You know, I don't want spring training pushback. You know, if it is by a few weeks or shortened, it is what it is. But now it's just it's getting clear and clear that this may really impact the regular season. I didn't think that was going to happen again because the owners want money. They want to make money back and doing something like this is, you know, you know, hinder that. So, you know, I don't. I don't know what they're doing as far as why they never concede anything, why it's always like this. They drag the sport through the mud. Um, you know, they drag their their players through the mud just to for these little short-term gains that really, if they, you know, concede these little things that really they seem to be for the players at this point, it would make them, you know, bigger dividends, but that's, you know, never the thought process, I guess. Uh, Mike, I think you had something else. 
Yeah, I just wanted to go over one last tweet before we moved off the lockout stuff. Uh, Joe Doyle of Prospects Live tweeted out, um, the average payroll in 2011 was $93 million, and the average payroll in 2021 was roughly $104 million, talking about a 12% um, increase in the decade. Meanwhile, during that same decade, the value of a team, a major league team, had jumped an average of 365%. Yeah, no, that's nuts. And also, you know, Mike, you brought up an interesting point real quick, too, just as far as what the, the, the mediation goes when they were asking the federal government to come to mediate. You know, it, it, it would it would guess it, it would take the, the earnest off the owners and then on a mediator. And, and I guess, to, you know, to the players union's credit, um, they saw right through that and didn't you know, wasn't going to allow that to happen. So credit to them there. Um, it's it's really crazy that, you know, we're at this point. I just look, I don't know, the other day I was just looking at, you know, all the, the young stars, like under 25 that baseball has. They're in such a good spot. You have Shohei Otani, guys, real life Babe Ruth on the cover. Everything was on the cover of GQ, you know, like they're in such a good spot with the sport. But for whatever reason, baseball itself chooses not to capitalize on it and just tries to, you know, um, hinder their sport and, and shrink it. And it's really sad. And I I've, I've sat here now for like two months, just talking about, Hey, maybe next week, something will get done. I guess I'll keep saying it. So hopefully it happens, but uh, I want to move off the lockout stuff. Um, and I want to talk baseball. Uh, both of you put out your top prospects list. Uh, Mike, you put out 50. Jacob put out 75. I do want to put that out there. And Jacob's a student. He had time to put in 25 more. It's okay. I'm not putting anybody down. They're both great lists. I just wanted to you know, say, so Jacob, put in a little bit more there. I don't know. You know, Mike, maybe you lose any touch a little bit. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but let's start uh, comparing your top 10 lists. I'm looking here. And the things that surprise me the most, and Jake, I'm going to start with you, that you have uh, Mark Vientos over Ronnie Mauricio. Now you have them slotted in three and four. Uh, Mike has Mauricio at three, uh, Ventos four, or Vientos four. You have Vientos three, and Mauricio four. It's obviously not a huge thing. But I was wondering, to start it off, what your thought process is there, why you have uh, Vientos rated ahead of Mauricio. Yeah, I think, you know, I kind of look at, uh, I guess I should start with, my overall methodology because you see so many prospect lists, whether it's an organizational top 10 or top 30 or like ours top 50 and 75, or you have your national lists that are, you know, all of baseball into one top 100, you know, it, it, but within those, some people may go purely on upside. Some people may go purely on floor. Some people go, you know, based on probability, these players simply reach the majors. Some people go, probability they have you know x amount of you know production in their first six years in the majors even though we all have these lists there's kind of uh there are differences within how we approach it and personally i try to kind of blend ceiling and floor uh and i think i tend to to lean towards the the floor side so guys that i think are more likely to you know have solid careers I would tend to put ahead of guys who are long shots to have great careers, you know, and then when, when you kind of get towards the back of the list, it's, you know, the, 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 the ordering means a little less than, than uh, overall. That's interesting, Mike, before I get to you, you brought up Jacob, the list that you look at and your process and everything. There are so many baseball prospects and that just, you got me thinking, 
is there one method for, for folks that, that cover the minor leagues and look at prospects? Like, is there a formula you've mentioned to us the last time we had you on about prospect fatigue? I thought that was really good. Um, how, how do you evaluate these guys? And I, and I know college has gotten better over the last 10, 15 years, and you're getting a lot of draft prospects out of there, and guys are getting to the major leagues faster, which is uh, part of the reason why we're in this lockout, right? Guys are younger, getting paid, all that's another thing. But what, what, like, is there certain formulas? How do you get to rank these guys? There's so many dudes. I feel like, you know, at, at a point it could be like a crapshoot, I guess, right? At the end of the, once you get towards the end, I'm sure the beginning, you know, your top 10 list or whatever, there's some some guys that you really know. But like once you're getting to, you know, especially for you, 60, 75, Mike only went to 50. But for you, you went past that. Um, how, how do you evaluate these guys once you get to that point? You talk again, you talk about prospect fatigue. How do you really know? Um, can you can you give us some insight on that? Yeah. Um, you know, I guess just personally, like how I think as a person across anything is that I like to know everything about what I'm interested in. And I guess like, that's how I became obsessed with the Mets from a young age was like, okay, there's so much information to know about this team and this organization. I want to know all of it. I I cannot tell you how, you know, people who cover all of the teams, minor league systems do that. Like I, and I won't pretend to know about the, you know, the, even within the NL East, like the Marlins, you know, 29th best prospect. Like I, I, you know, there are names that I'm learning uh, every day. Like I, I've never heard of these guys before and they're ranked in like the top 15 of a guys of a team system. So uh, I can't speak to how, you know, the national guys like Keith law just put out his top 100 um, you know, when you're dealing with upwards of, 5,000 minor leaguers in that ballpark, um, you know, to, to single out, obviously there are the names that everyone knows that are kind of in that top upper tier. Um, but when it comes to the Mets, you know, it's, it's more of a, a manageable sample of, of, uh, you know, names that, you know, I think, and Mike would agree, like when you're following these minor league uh, affiliates and, and these players every day and, and constantly, doing research and reading box scores and looking at season long stats and looking up advanced metrics and, you know, talking to other people, you know, that, that similarly follow the the system, you know, that you start, to, I guess, starts to be names that you discuss and, and hear about more often. And, and like I was saying before, obviously the top 10 is, is more important to refine the, the actual order. And I can speak to uh, Vientos over Mauricio in a second, but, uh, like I was also saying, once you get towards the back, there's really no functional difference between, you know, 37 and 39, and especially not between like 65 and 75. It's kind of just more of those tiers and um, kind of thinking more generally, okay, who's more likely, like I said, who's more likely to make the major leagues. And um, I think the reason why I went to all the way to 75 is there are a bunch of guys that, you know, I've kind of been interested in and you know guys who have piqued my interest over the past year who I knew were not going to be in the top 30 um and probably weren't going to be in a top 50. Um so by going to 75 I kind of gave myself the opportunity to just sprinkle in a few guys towards the end that um it's not crazy to think that those guys are the 68th and you know 72nd best prospect in the system. They could be they might also not be they might be the you know 93rd or whatever um who's to to actually say but 
you know, there are definitely those guys that, you know, might have an interesting characteristic of their, their stat line or their, their pitch metrics or something like that, that stands out that uh, maybe doesn't make them a, you know, in contention for the top 30, like I said, but certainly is, is worthy of at least putting out there and just kind of getting names on, on people's radars. As far as, you know, Mauricio and Vientos, like I said, I kind of lean towards the, the floor side of the ceiling floor spectrum. Uh, and the way I kind of look at it is, and, you know, I've, I've loved Ronnie Mauricio since he first got onto our radar, you know, when they first signed him as a, as an international free agent, but we kind of look at where they both are right now. Um, and if they continue on their trajectories that they have set themselves on since, you know, returning from the, the COVID season, uh, the canceled COVID season, uh, if they continue on those trajectories, uh, where are they most likely to end up? And for Mark Vientos, maybe that's not, you know, an above average starting third baseman. Like if he continues on his trajectory that he's on right now, like he's definitely a major leaguer, um, but he has a lot of holes in his swing and, you know, could end up a 215 hitter that, you know, hits 25 home runs over a certain amount of plate appearances, something like that. So that's more likely than if Ronnie Mauricio continues on his current trajectory, which is, you know, a 5% walk rate and, you know, up and down uh, defensive effort. And, you know, obviously he showed a lot this year in terms of power, but if he continues the way he's going, like he could have a down year in double a, um, you know, and, and completely blow up his, his future prospects. Now, you know, obviously he's on the 40 man roster now, and that usually gives them a little more leeway and they invested a lot of money, him money in him a few years ago. So I, I don't think one bad year is going one more bad year is going to uh, completely put him out of the organization's future plans. But uh, when you kind of look at where they are right now and where they're heading, um, I think, uh, you know, Vientos has that, that floor for me that, that put him ahead of Mauricio's real tantalizing potential. That's really just potential right now. Interesting. Uh, Mike, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your kind of process when you're ranking guys, you don't have to give away all your secrets, but a little bit of the formula that goes into it. And uh, you know why you ranked Mauricio third uh, ahead of Vientos at fourth. Yeah. I mean, I try to do a lot of what Jacob talked about when you're talking about comparing floor versus ceiling and proximity to the majors is another one to keep in mind. Like he was talking about with Vientos um, also take in, to like with Mauricio and Alvarez, um, the age they were compared to the age of the league. Um, I mean, obviously Alvarez was, I think he was ended up five years or four and a half years uh, younger than the average age in that league. So that's something you take into when you're looking at these guys. And there's other stuff like uh, you got to talk to people too, um, whether it's in the Mets organization talking to people to try to get some of their thoughts on certain players or even some stats on certain players. Um, because a lot of this stuff in the minor leagues isn't for public consumption, but a lot of the advanced statistics are kept in house. Um, and then you all, you, I mean, you also want to talk to scouts too. You want to see uh, scouts from other teams, what they've seen from these guys and just get their thought process too. Um, I will say when I kind of started doing this, I leaned more on to that type of thing. Um, what I read from or talked to scouts, what they thought and what I heard from people in the Mets organization. Um, as I've 
the longer I've done it, I've gotten more comfortable with um, me, my evaluation of the player a little bit more. And not that I don't talk to those guys, but kind of weigh what I think a little more heavily. And yeah, I think, I mean, me and Jacob, uh, we worked together for a long time and I think both of us kind of had the same idea for the most part. Um, I do think I probably do lean ceiling a little more, which kind of, which is why Mauricio Vientos is a good example of, I mean, it's a very subtle difference that I have them three, four, and he has them flip-flopped. Uh, it's a very subtle difference, but I, I think it's a good conversational point because, yeah, that, that's important. Like he's talking about in the top 10, um, especially in a system that's top heavy, where you're placing these guys. And um, the reasoning behind that, I think, is very important to for the readers or for anyone else to kind of un understand where we're coming from. Um, yeah, so with Mauricio, I... I I still think he has the higher ceiling than Vientos. Obviously, I think, I mean, he did have a rough season um, defensively in the Dominican League. Um, that kind of shot him down my thought process on him and others. I, I know that he dropped in national rankings um, in part because of his defense in the second half of the year and in the Dominican League and also the, the fact that he still isn't walking. He's not posting an on-base percentage over um, 300. Um, and yes, he is, he is young for his league. And that's, I mean, that's not completely unheard of for a, a kid at 20 um, posting numbers like that on base. But at, at some point, uh, Mauricio is a guy that has to get on base at a higher clip. We haven't seen that yet. So that that's obviously going to put a hit onto what you think he's going to be. Um, as for the power, yeah, um, there's not too many shortstops in the minor leagues that have the type of in-game and raw power that Mauricio has. Um, but that's also, I mean, that's also why you can talk about Vientos having such a high floor is because of his uh, power. He had, he's one of the best power hitters in the minor leagues last year. And I do feel like I agree with Jacob that he's a guy that, you give him a certain amount of at bats and he's going to hit 25, 30 home runs in a major league season. It just remains to be seen if that's at third base, if that's at first base, if that's the H um, and that's where you kind of have to figure out what his floor is going to be as well as his ceiling. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's really close between those two. I think it's close closer than most would think between Mauricio and Vantos. Um, I think I think Vientos could leapfrog him um, this year if he improves at third base a little bit more. That That's really what I'm looking for from Vientos this year is he did. I, I do want to make a note that Vientos did look better at third base this year. Um, before I had some real questions about whether he would stick at third long-term, but he came into camp looking much um, more agile this year. He looked better physically and he, uh, he looked better at third base and some of the uh, metrics, again, not public, were better on him this year at third base. So I, I think that's something to keep an eye on going forward specifically for him. Interesting. Um, and, you know, talking about, Mike, you said how um, you and Jacob 
you know, your list can be a lot of similar. The thought process is very similar. You work together a lot, you know, obviously during Jacob's time at MMO and Mets minors. Um, besides the flip-flop of three and four, you have, you know, Mauricio and Vientos on there. Your top six is exactly the same. You both have uh, Francisco Alvarez and Brett Beatty ranked one and two. And you both have Matthew Allen and TJ Ginn at five and six. Obviously, like I said, three and four are flip-flop, depending on which one you look at, Mauricio and Vientos. Um, but, you know, I just want to talk about your, your top six then in general. The other guys, it seems like it's a consensus that Alvarez is the number one Mets prospect. Talk about ceiling. I know Keith Law put out his prospect list. He has Piazza-like ceiling, at least offensively, for uh, Alvarez. So I just want to talk about, you know, your, your top two rankings. It seems like you guys are, you know, uh, in agreement with that. And, you know, I just want to get your thought process and what you, you think, I guess their ceilings are and, you know, why you have uh, Alvarez and Beatty ranked as high as you do. And then talk to me a little bit about Allen and TJ again to round out your top six. Uh, Jacob, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think it's a pretty, I mean, obviously evidenced by our list, like it's a pretty solidified top of, top of the uh of the organization um you know you can make the argument for sure that gin should be above allen just based on the fact that allen's you know missed all of 2020 because there was no season missed all of 2021 because he had tommy john surgery and and based on the uh recovery timetables we've seen from guys in the past not saying that he'll be exactly the same but uh you know he might not be full throttle until uh, you know, mid 2023, you know, at, at which point he'll be well, I mean, JT again could be in the major leagues by then, uh, might not be, but, but certainly could. So, um, you know, look, looking back on it, maybe, you know, as, as, like I said, I, I kind of swing more towards the, the seal, uh, the floor, excuse me, side, uh, could have had Ginn over Allen, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a group of like guys that the, you know, fans should be excited about. I think, the one thing that I've learned from, from doing this for, for a few years uh, or more than a few years now is uh, that the value of these guys will never be higher than it is right now. You know, for Keith Law to come out and say that Alvarez has Mike Piazza potential with his bat, like, I mean, that's just, that's just not fair to, to Alvarez say he's going to save, uh, save New York, like, a future hall of famer did. So I think if you can get major league starters out of any of these guys, um, it's, it's a win. And I think they have the potential because they all have like insane work ethic. And you hear that a lot from, from the coaches and the managers that they've had and their teammates, even that these are all guys that put in a lot of hours. Um, Alvarez, especially like is just full, full go a hundred percent of the time, which, as a catcher is, is crazy. Um, you know, doesn't want to take a day off and, um, always wants to be in the lineup and is, is putting in a lot of work in the off season as well. Um, which I think is a, a benefit of, of being 20 years old or 19 years old. He was this past year. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a solid group. Um, and I think I'm, I'm most excited about that, uh, the range. So right now it's, one to six where we're like okay these are the guys who we feel confident in are going to be good major leaguers um i'm, I'm excited for that range to potentially be expanding uh you know in the coming coming months and, and years where we can say all right you know one to 15 you know in this organization we're we're 
we're excited about, you know, with, with the draft picks they have coming up and they're putting a lot of money back into international free agency. So it's uh it's a solid group and, and you're seeing it now, you know, baseball America released their organization uh, rankings. And like I said, I don't really know other systems as well or anywhere near as well as I know the Mets system. So it's people ask me all the time, like, where would you place the Mets system uh, in relation to other organizations? And it's, it's hard for me to put them into context other than just the, the common talking points. And, and for the last few years, it's been pretty universal that it's a, a bottom uh, bottom third system in, in baseball and baseball America came out and put them, I think 16th. And, you know, to be right around that halfway point among all the organizations, I think were the Yankees like right around there too, maybe even, you know, slightly below. And the Yankees are an organization who just have been unbelievable in their player development over the last, you know, however long decade plus. Um, so it's, it's an exciting time and, and it starts with, with those guys at the top for sure. Absolutely. And Mike, to you, you know, you both have Brett Beatty as the second rate prospect on the Mets. We've heard his name for a long time. It feels like he had a great Arizona fall league this past fall. Um, you know, with that kind of high prospect tag on him, what can, what can we like expect realistically? What kind of play do you think that Beatty is going to be? And what does it mean that he's ranked that high on the list? You know, I don't, I, we talk about prospect fatigue, you know, what, what can be like, or should be a realistic expectation once he's finally up in the majors that Mets fans you think could, you know, expect out of him. Well, I think Beatty is actually a type of guy that kind of jumped on to a lot of people's radars this year, simply because of how we hit, um, how we started off the year. Um, like you said, then played in the Arizona fall league and played pretty well. And uh, he also started to get some real national recognition recognition. I think baseball prospectus actually had him. I think it was up as, high as number 18 on their top 100 in baseball so i mean once you put something out like that that's gonna catch even the eye of people that normally don't even i mean not everyone pays attention to prospects like we do so um if you hear a mets prospect is ranked 18th in all of baseball that's when you're going to start taking a look and paying attention um yeah with Beatty, i i just see a guy that has a good hit tool gets on base and he has a good power tool as well. And at third base, I think, I think he's fine at third. I think he's a starting caliber defensive third baseman. And I actually think um, he'll be fine out in left field too, if that's where they decide um, they play him. I mean, like say something happens like you trade for Josh Donaldson and uh, he, so he's playing third base and then you need a bat at the end of part of the year and maybe someone's hurt. I mean, Beatty could play some corner outfield. Um, so, I mean, the the fact that they put him out in left field and the fact that he looked pretty good out in left field, I think he, for me, adds to his value even more. Um, but like I said, I, I think there's no issue with him as a third baseman. Yeah, I think, I think for Beatty, I think what he really improved for me this year and what kind of raised the stock big time was like, a thing that Jacobs talked about a lot today is his floor. I think Beatty really raised what his floor was from the start of last year until the end of last year. Um, because there was, I mean, there was questions of his defense, like, Oh, well, maybe he ends up at first base. Well, when you end up at first base as a prospect, that really diminishes what your value is offensively um, and overall as a prospect. And it diminishes that your ceiling, 
So by Beatty raising his floor and sticking at third, um, he really raised the ceiling too. So I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'm not sure I would have him at number 18 in all of baseball, but again, these, these are guys that um, know more about the rest of the prospects in baseball than I do. They, they pay attention to that more than me. So um, at least from a fan standpoint, it's exciting to see someone like that from the organization that high. And uh, yeah, I mean, Alvarez was number eight on Keith Law's list. Um, to see a catcher, a 20-year-old catcher, number eight, I mean, that that's nuts. I mean, and then like Jacob said, throwing in the Piazza thing, I, that feels like that feels like a bit much. I mean, I know we got Keith coming on to the podcast soon, so we'll have to ask him about the Piazza thing. But uh, yeah, I, the offensive tools are there for Alvarez. Um, I catcher shortstop outfielder whatever prospect position you want to talk about i don't know when's the last time i personally covered a prospect that was as fine-tuned offensively as francisco alvarez was at 19 i i I can't think of anyone off the top of my head right now maybe jacob has someone but I, i don't remember a prospect being as polished as he is offensively. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm trying to think back. And um, I think since I've been doing it, the Mets have had a lot of teenagers that have high expectations and flame out really quickly. Um, so I, I'm definitely more confident in Alvarez keeping his, keeping his flame going uh, than some of those other guys in the past. Um, but yeah, he's just... He's really, really fun to watch. And um, like I mentioned before, his his drive is insane. And, and I hope that it's not something that will prevent him from catching uh, in the future. Um, because honestly, I don't really know where else you would play him. He's not um, like he moves well behind the plate, but like he's not going to play first base and he's not, he doesn't have like the, the agile range to, you know, cover, cover ground in the outfield uh, in like a corner outfield spot or, or third base or something like that. Um, so I, I hope that he, I guess, learns as he, as he moves up the minors, how to, uh, you know, conserve his energy and uh, go about his craft, you know, as a, as a full-time job, like a lot of guys have to learn, you know, when they come in from, from high school or, or international free agency, like he did um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's as much about, uh, pacing yourself throughout a season as it is, you know, putting in, you know, 110%. Yeah. I want to jump in. Um, I know you probably had this coming up next Sal on your list anyway, but we had mentioned Keith law and we had really focused on Jacob and I's one through six and how they're exact same and how that's kind of a general feeling. Um, but I don't know where Jacob has them. I'd have to go back and look, but I have, Alex Ramirez eight on my list. Um, where does he have him? So we're looking here. He has him 10. 10. All right. So yeah. So I have him in eighth and I, and Jacob has him 10th and going back to Keith law, Keith law actually had him as his 100th best prospect in baseball. So obviously, and he had five in his list. So law had Alvarez, Beatty, Mauricio, Vientos, and Ramirez. So, I mean, again, this this is where 
we can go back to um, the methodology of what we're looking at here. Uh, with Ramirez that high, 100th best prospect in baseball, gives you kind of a look into the fact that Keith Law pretty clearly, um, and not just looking at Ramirez, other list he's done, but Ramirez is a good example. Keith obviously likes athletic high ceiling players. I mean, that's what you're looking at with Ramirez. I mean, we're talking about a guy that was playing in full season ball that started out as an 18 year old in full season ball with Ramirez. And I mean, you just go look at his stats and there's nothing that's particularly going to jump out to you just stats um, watching him. But what Keith was looking at is his projection and his raw tools and um, the high ceiling that those raw tools give Ramirez as a potential um, center fielder. Um, yeah. So I, I think that was an interesting point of, I was, I was honestly shocked when I saw, saw that Keith law had him a hundred. Uh, I, I, I texted you right away. <laughs> yeah. We, we immediately were like, Holy crap. Do you see Ramirez is a hundred? Then I was like, I, again, I'm not going to down Keith law's list. Everyone has, their different methodology and their thought process. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's awesome. I'm really glad that someone as smart as Keith Law thinks Ramirez is one of the top 100 prospects in baseball. And I think he's definitely a guy that Mets fans should keep an eye on this year as he continues to develop. I mean, you want to talk about a hard worker. This is another guy that played his way into full season um, from what he did in the minor league spring training. Um, from the people I talked to with the Mets, they were kind of unsure about what his placement was going to be this year. And so he stayed back into the spring training, the minor league spring training and the extended spring there. But he played his way on to St. Lucie because he just kept getting better and better and better. And they got to the point where like, well, this guy's got to face better competition. He's got to go and play for St. Lucie. So that it's another impressive guy from a, um, a work standpoint and it'll be awesome to see how he develops this year that's interesting and that's the cool part about the prospect list and also it's it's kind of nuts how year to year how different it can be you know um, you have a guy like Alex Ramirez who I'm not really familiar with you guys are uh, you know you see Keith Law has him on his you know ranked him as the hundred number 100 prospect he could have a bad year this year. Next year, we may not see him at all. You know, you'll never know who he is. I think that's the the cool part, and also like the volatile part about the minor leagues and all these prospects and stuff. But uh, personally, prospect wise, I'm still waiting for Fernando Martinez for his breakout. Um, that was that's probably a little before Jacob's time. I know Mike knows who I'm talking about. F Mart was supposed to be the next big thing, huge outfielder for the Mets, like 2007, 2008. He maybe played like five games for the Mets. We never heard from him. I think he's selling cars in uh, in Tampa Bay now or something. I don't even know. Um, but that's just uh, uh, someone I always think about, always prospect stuff. Um, but another name I wanted to talk about on the list real quick, uh, friend of the program, uh, Jake Mangum. Uh, Mike, you have him ranked 15 on your list. And Jacob, you have him as 21st. Um, if you, if you want to get paid for your appearance today, I would like you to explain this um, this uh, travesty uh, ranking him outside the top 20. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I said, one like the tiers get bigger as as we move back. So like what's the functional difference between 21 and 20 is is not that big. Um, and I mean, honestly, if 
it was this time last year. I, I don't know if Mangum would have been inside my top 35 um, just based on, you know, where he was at that point. You know, I, I don't think we really knew that the, that he was working on his, his power, adding power to his game as much as he was. Um, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit when, when, uh, when I was on last time, you know, it's just kind of impressive that he's been able to add that power to his game while, um, still maintaining his, uh, you know, ability to just put the bat on the ball and, and, uh, and get on base, um, and add that to, uh, you know, plus speed and plus plus defense, um, is impressive. So, uh, I don't take 21 as a, as a slight at all. I think, um, you know, anyone in, uh, in that, you know, once you move past the top 10 from that 11 to 25 range, uh, really are all upper minors guys that I think have a, uh, let, you know, it's at least solid shot at, at making the majors at, at some point, if, if the Mets need to start dipping into that, that, uh, you know, Syracuse talent pool, um, which I I'm expecting to be, much more of a, a prospect uh, filled roster than, than it has been in, in recent years, because you have these guys like, like Mangum, like uh, Eric Orzi, uh, you know, Carlos Rincon, Carlos Cortez. Um, uh, who else do I have? Josh Walker uh, as a, as a left-handed starting pitcher guys who are definitely not in that top 10 consideration, but um, certainly, like I said, have that, that higher floor than, um, some of the the lottery ticket guys that I have lower down on my list. So certainly I think Megum is, is, is in that conversation as um, a guy who's going to be looked at for, for contributions coming up soon. Got it. And he won't be mad at you because he's the nicest guy ever, but yeah, you know, he's, he'll, he's he'll, he'll show you that he's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mike, uh, why did you have Jake in your top 15? Yeah. I mean, like uh, Resnick mentioned, I mean, once you kind of get past, I mean, looking at my list, once you kind of get past like number 12 or 13, um, I mean, anywhere from 14 to like 27 is kind of interchangeable. There's you're talking really small differences between why that guy is there. Um, yeah, but I think I think Mangum is 15 for me simply because proximity and he really raised his ceiling for me this year. Um I thought he always had the floor of a fourth, fifth outfielder. He was going to make the big leagues at some point just because of his defense. I mean, it's plus plus in center field. So that type of guy is almost always going to get some kind of chance at the major league level. Um, but no, with adding the power, there's a legitimate, I think there's a higher chance of him being more of a third, fourth outfielder now and for the Mets, I mean, that's a pretty big thing. Um, they've kind of lacked having depth at the AAA, even AA rosters the last couple of years in the outfield. And uh, now that Jacob kind of mentioned it, and I'm looking at my um, list and thinking about rosters, because, I mean, hey, the lockout can happen, but it's not locking out the minor leagues. These guys are playing no matter what. Um, Syracuse Mets in 58 days have a game schedule for the Mets first minor league game of the season um, the only difference I mean the only thing to know is that the guys um, like Mauricio Vantos that we talked about can't play because they're on the 40-man roster but um, back to the point the Syracuse roster this year is going to be loaded and not just 
loaded on looking at the outfield. I, d- I don't know how they're going to get all these guys playing time in the outfield between Mangum, Plummer, Khalil Lee, Cortez has been playing the outfield, Carlos Rincon mentioned too. Um, and then the, the pitching with Adam Aller, um, Daniel Nunez, assuming he's healthy, Eric Gorza, Josh Walker. Um, yeah, Syracuse is going to be a good Jose Buto, probably being Syracuse. Um, yeah, it's going to be a strength for the Mets this year, what they have at AAA roster. Yeah, and, and just adding another thing to that point, I remember writing at some point during this season, this past season for, for SNY, I went back and looked at the Syracuse opening day roster from last season, and there were only two players on that roster. And keep in mind, it was expanded because they were allowing more players on like a taxi squad because of COVID. There were only two players on the Syracuse opening day roster last year that uh, were homegrown. Uh, And that was David Thompson, who is now a, he left via minor league free agency, but he was a fourth round pick out of uh, Miami in 2015. Um, And uh, Thomas Apucky, who was, you know, that's another interesting thing to talk about from our list about how he dropped from once a, you know, guy in the top five in the system to now outside both of our top thirties. But um, yeah, like they're going from literally no prospects. And I was actually interested to see where that ranked as, you know, homegrown guys on AAA rosters that didn't have the time to do the full research, but I can imagine not many teams have, have fewer than two guys that they drafted, make it up to AAA. And I think that's a, that's a big thing for the Mets going forward and their player development. Like, obviously we talk about the, the bottom line in player development success being how many guys you get to the major leagues and how many guys you get to be major league contributors, but like just getting guys to like double A even is like important because uh, the more guys you get to double A is the more guys with the potential to get to triple A and the more guys you get to triple A, the more guys you, you uh, have the potential of, of getting to the major league. So, um, you know, depth is a huge thing. And I think it's uh, it's starting to starting to expand as they, they put a lot more efforts into their, their player development system. Yeah, no. And uh, Mike, you kind of said it. Uh, the one thing, I think that jumps out at me for both these lists that the Mets have a ton of outfielders, man. If you're a minor league outfielder, good luck. You really got to put something good together because you can get stuck real quick. Um, but to put a bow on the uh, the prospect talks, just real quick, I wanted to ask you guys who give me one prospect from the back end of your list that you think has the the best ceiling, uh, so to speak. Uh, Jacob, I'll start with you. Yeah, like I said, um, I use the the back of my list to sprinkle in some names that intrigue me just from, from little things that would pop up during the season. Um, I think the two I'll give you, I'll get, actually I'll give you two. I'll give you one hitter and one pitcher. Um, both guys that spent most of their season in the Florida complex league, which uh, that stuff really interests me because there's like no information on that, like publicly. So any little nugget that you get is, is pretty big relative um, and, you know, it's always fun to see guys kind of pop out, uh, you know, from the, the complex league and the Dominican summer league. Um, but, uh, Carlos Dominguez is a guy that's kind of been on my radar now. Um, he actually hit, uh, 10 or 11 home runs. He, he hit double digits, um, playing in the FCL in just like 45 games, which I uh, went back and looked and that's the most in a single season for any, uh, met in the formerly Gulf coast league, but now the the uh, Florida complex league in a single season there. So um, he's a little older. Uh, I think he's 22 now, um, 
but you know, with guys losing a, a season in 2020, I, I don't really hold that against them as much as I, I once did. But um, if, when you're talking about raw power in the system, obviously Vientos, uh, Alvarez, Mauricio, um, you know, Beatty, Khalil Lee is up there as well. And uh, I'd put Carlos Dominguez up there with, with those guys. Uh, we've seen a bunch of guys in the past, you know, low, really low Mets minor, low level Mets minor leaguers where, where power is their, their calling card. And, you know, they strike out a lot and Dominguez certainly did. Um, <laughs> Mike is going to laugh when I mentioned names like Anthony DeRossier and, uh, you know, guys like that uh, who end up flaming out, you know, once they hit the, the low A level or something like that. So one of the, one of these days, the guy is going to break through and, and actually make the major leagues. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll put my, my eggs in the Carlos Dominguez basket. And then the pitcher that I really liked is uh, Daniel Juarez, who's a, a 20 year old left-handed pitcher. Um, you know, not one of, not like a big international free agent signing, but um, you know, they brought him in a couple of years ago and then he was up to, to the Florida complex league for most of the season uh, really high strikeout rate, uh, ground ball rate as well. Um, you know, when, when you have a low minors pitcher who has, you know, a high combination of strikeouts and ground balls, that's, that's really what I'm going to, what I'm going to like. He's a left-handed pitcher as well. Uh, and he's short, which once was a knock on pitchers. Yeah. It's <laughs> Sal giving me the thumbs up. Yeah. Me too. Thumbs up for the short Kings. Um, but he's a short guy, which means, you know, his fastball is coming out from a low, low release height. Um, and when he was going up to, to see, he made a, a cameo with low a St. Lucie and um, you know, you can see some stat cast data from there and he was getting his fastball up to uh, 20 inches of vertical break, which is um, really something that pops out, especially from the left side. So uh, I had him 53 and, and certainly if he you know gets up to, uh, you know, full season in low a and high a um, I'd certainly, certainly be interested in him. Uh, and then I, I just sprinkled a few names. I know you only asked for one name, but I have to just shout out a couple names at the back. Um, I put a lot of, you know, international uh, pitchers who started to get up towards the, you know, the low A level. Um, Sammy Tavares, Franklin Sanchez, uh, Luis Rodriguez. I know Baseball America had Luis Rodriguez as the 17th best prospect in the system. I don't necessarily agree with that. I had him 73. Uh, but uh, all guys who who can touch, uh, you know, 98, 99 um, and like same thing with the, the power hitters. It's not a profile that has a high rate of success, you know, just all power, all all high velocity. But um, it's certainly a, an ingredient that that can be harnessed and, and developed. And, um, you know, it's going to be exciting to watch all these guys in a in a full season next year for the first time. That was great, Jacob. Thank you, Mike. What about you? Uh, well, I'm like Jacob, I could, it's really tough to stay with one or two or even three. Um, one guy I want to talk about, I had him 38th is Keyshawn Askew. Um, when the Mets drafted him, he was a guy that sat around 90, topped out 92, 93. Um, he only pitched a couple innings in the complex league, but he was now sitting 92, 93 and hitting 95, 96. Um, as a left-hander, lanky left-hander. Um, yeah, I mean, right then and there, you're already pretty impressed. I mean, there's not a ton of left-handers throwing 95, 96 um, still today. And that's a starter. Um, and he was keeping velocity deep into, um, well, in college, he was, he kept the velocity deep in the starts. He didn't 
make any big starts yet with his um, first season. So it'll be interesting to see with that velocity spike, can he keep it up? But uh, yeah, he's got a sweeping slider that he used pretty well too with a high spin rate um, this year. So uh, he's a guy to keep an eye on that they could move a little quick once he gets in the full season ball because he's already 22. Um, and another name I'd want to mention, I, I mentioned him because we were talking about AAA and the depth that the Mets are going to have. And this guy, Connor Gray, was pitching for the Chicago Dogs in independent ball last year when the Mets picked him up and then made us, he pitched in St. Lucie, pitched well. He went to double-A Binghamton, pitched well. So the Mets are like, well, we're going to send him to Arizona Fall League where you send a lot. Of, I mean, for the most part is well, a lot of top prospects are in the Arizona Fall League. And he pitched pretty well there too. Um, this is a guy that fastball around 93, 94, good command of all of his pitches. And his out pitch is a curveball that, I mean, it's one of the better curveballs in the Mets system. Um, obviously, you go look at his baseball reference page and you're going to find out that the dude's 27, which is obviously makes it tough for him to be in any top list. I think I had him 43rd, but we're talking about a guy. I just wanted to shout him out. We're talking about a guy that was pitching in the indie ball, jumped all the way to the Arizona Fall League, and is probably going to be pitching in AAA next year. So, I mean, we're talking about that's one or two starter injuries away from him pitching in the big leagues. And I, he's got a pretty decent pitch mix between his fastball, curveball, and changeup. I think he's a guy that could eat up a couple of innings. Um, for a hitter, oh, I really wanted to say Wilmer Reyes. But then I realized I had him at 28 on my list. I've always been a Wilmer Reyes fan. Um, dude that can play shortstop really well. But the Mets have moved him around um, the entire infield. He's played everywhere in the infield. He had a knee injury that forced him to miss most of the year this year. Um, I think he's got a pretty good hit tool. I think that he's a guy that's going to rise pretty quick this year. Um but so he's in my top 30. So I'll pick a hitter outside the top 30, just so I'm not breaking any rules, but I had to mention him. Um, a guy that I know Jacob's seen firsthand is uh, Jose Peraza. He plays second base, third base. And um, Jacob mentioned all those power guys, like the top tier. I think Peraza is kind of in that next tier of guys um, that have good power. And he doesn't strike out a ton. He walks a little bit. He can play second and third. I think he's pretty solid at both of those spots, and he's still only 21. So I th he's not a big-name guy. I had him at 34. Um, just a kind of the under-radar guy that uh, keeps performing pretty well in the minors. And uh, between having the power and the ability to play a couple of defensive spots, um, those are always tight you look at later that might end up with a big league career or at least get a taste like a – Blankenhorn or Travis Blankenhorn that the Mets had up it this year. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think that'll, I, I don't want to keep dipping into too many names here. No, that's great. Um, Jacob, do you have one last thing? Yeah. Just, just on, on Peroza. Cause 
Mike, Mike mentioned that I, I've been uh, high on him as well. And I got to see him in Brooklyn when he was uh, 19, got a call up when they were still short season team in, in 2019. Um, and he was young, but looked really good there. Uh, really strong arm from third base and a lot of power. And just a nugget I had on him, this was in an SNY article I wrote. Um, if you look at the last two seasons of Mets minor league baseball, which is 2019 and 2021, and exclude like the AAA veterans that they've brought in, uh, that they bring in every year, the home run leaderboard for those two years combined is uh, five guys that, you know, are in the top 10, if not, you know, top five talk, uh, Vientos, Alvarez, Carlos Cortez, Mauricio and Brett Beatty, and then Peroza's in that group as well. Peroza actually has uh, more home runs than, than Beatty over the last two years uh, and right behind Mauricio. So uh, he's definitely one of those guys that uh, has, has a strong tool, uh, whether the rest of his game is going to come together and manifest itself into a, a major league career remains to be seen, but he at least has that going for him. And last, last thing I just want to mention, because Mike brought up uh, Keyshawn Askew, I think just overall, like some of the guys from, uh, other guys from the Mets drafts last year, like are, are interesting. Um, and, you know, a lot of pitchers that probably profile best as, as relievers going forward, like, uh, you know, Levi David and uh, Carson Seymour, Christian Scott, uh, Mike Vazel, I think has the best chance to remain as a starter. So that's why I had him as, as my number 30, but um, you know, I know his fastball was ticking up to the upper nineties in, in short bursts. So maybe he's, he's a reliever in the future as well, but, I think the Mets did a really good job with their, their draft um, this past year. Obviously they didn't get their number one, you know, the first round pick to, to remain in the organization, but um, they have a lot of guys who I think are going to, like I said, boost that, that depth uh, in the coming years as in, in the upper levels, Justin Guerrera was their last pick uh, from Fairfield actually. So shout out to uh, Mac baseball. Um, but uh, you know, he's a guy that, that had some really, really good power numbers this year in his, in his pro debut. So uh, lots of names. Like I said, we could talk about this for, for five hours, but we'll, we'll spare the listeners a, uh, <laughs> one of the longest podcasts they've ever listened to. That's all right. I appreciate it. I think the, the short of it is the Mets are in some good hands with their, uh, with their minor leagues. It's been, it's been thin, you know, for a while, but it seems like that's, uh, something that the new regime is really putting a focus on and some, uh, former prospects are, you know, going to be moving up the pipeline soon should be some good things with the future in Queens. But, uh, last couple things I wanted to get to, let's wrap this up real quick. Robinson Cano has been tearing it up in the Dominican Winter League and in the Caribbean series. Uh, Mike, I beat you to it. I talked about it first. So uh, real quick, Mike, is Robinson Cano back? I, the people want to know. Is, is Robbie, Robbie C24, is he back? Uh, what new steroids is he taking to do this? And when eventually will he get uh, suspended again? The people want to know, Mike. Yeah, like you said, I mean, he was a all-star for the Caribbean series. Um, he hit over 400, had a slugging around 600, though slugging is skewed because one of his extra base hits was uh, just a pretty common single to center field that former Mets legend Jonas Wee Vargas misplayed into a triple. So, yeah, no, I mean, I've got a chance to watch. He played 38 games in all in winter ball between the regular season, the round robin, and then the Caribbean series. In those 38 games, there still isn't a guy that's squaring up a lot of balls. Um, I know he hit 290, but his slugging percentage was, I think, 357 in 38 games. Um, he also knocked in a ton of runs, but I, 
he was beating the shift once in a while. He was hitting a lot of dunkers. I one home run in that span. Um, yeah, he's just not squaring up too many balls. I don't see a ton of power. And maybe hey, I, it's so tough to judge. Um, I mean, in those leagues, you're talking the competition pitching competition is about double, triple A. Um, you're talking about a guy that hasn't played in a long time. Um, this was basically like a spring training for him in that amount of games. Um, I think that's such a tough thing to know right now still with the lockout because we know, we're we under the assumption that the Mets aren't done adding to their roster. And as you add to, Ross, to the roster, the Robinson Cano question gets even tougher. Like, how do you keep him up in a roster spot if you add such and such? Um, but yeah, I... He isn't complete. I guess the pot trying to say positive is he's not completely toast. I don't, I don't think um, his defense was okay at second too. So, I mean, I, I don't think he's completely toast quite yet. I'll say it. He's completely <laughs> toast. The Mets aren't going to eat $43 million. They'll eat 25 next year. He's going to be on this roster this year. He will be a lower third of the order. Platoon DH against, you know, crappy right-handers, and maybe he'll drive some runs in and never plays an inning in the field ever. Because if he's out there playing the field, the Mets are in bad straights. But I've, I'll give him some props. He's had some good time, you know, a good winter league. Uh, he posted everyone on his Instagram, so you know about it. Um, and that's about it with him. But uh, the last thing I wanted to just really quickly touch, the other day ESPN put out their top 100 baseball players all time. Mr. <laughs> One Jacob DeBrom was omitted on that list. I just real quick wanted to get your guys' reactions really fast on that. If you're okay with it, if you're not, whatever, Jacob, start with you. Yeah, I didn't I didn't uh spend too much time looking at it. I saw some of the the discourse. Um, but like I don't know. I find that stuff kind of silly. Like I get comparing like, you know, prospects to each other, you know, who are playing now, but like to put, you know, Babe Ruth and, you know, Shohei Otani and, uh, you know, Greg Maddox and Walter Johnson, like in the same, like to compare those guys and where do you place them? Like, I, I don't put too much stock into that. I think uh, we're at the point of the off season where, uh, you know, editorial people are, are going to uh, disintegrate if they don't <laughs> just make a, make a resolution anytime soon. So uh, just kind of, fishing for for some content but it's always it's always kind of funny to see those things get put out and just see the the uh the flames that go up on on twitter when uh when people start talking about it and start circulating so yeah that's me currently disintegrating um yeah i mean like jacob said it's so tough to compare eras and like babe ruth playing against plumbers and mike trout playing against the people he is nowadays and Babe Ruth not Babe Ruth playing against only white players. I mean, this that, that type of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think I mean I tweeted out the top 15 and then like the discourse went nuts. I, I think it's kind of interesting to see just kind of like the completely different reactions, especially like Babe Ruth, for instance, like I kind of mentioned, is it was it felt, I mean, I didn't count everything, but it felt like it was almost like 50-50. It's like yeah, Babe Ruth, he pitched like he did. He hit like he did 183.2 war for his career, I think it is. Yeah, he's definitely number one. And then the other half is like, 
yeah, this dude was drunk half the time on a diet of just hot dogs playing against white plumbers in a 16 team league where they played against the same pitcher all the time. So it was just interesting to see the discourse. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the Grom's in that list eventually, like you mentioned the Grom. Um, yeah. I think, I think he's up there. I, I did think it was kind of weird to see Pedro at 11 and Seaver at 22. To me, you could have easily flip-flopped them and it would have made more sense to me. And I know that's even a lot of Mets fans and other fans were like, whoa, Pedro at 11? That kind of stuck out to them. Um, yeah, that that felt a little high to me, even though, I mean, that span he had of three or four years is about as good as it gets. Um, yeah, I, I still thought Seaver overall was probably he's probably the better pitcher of those two guys overall for a career so yeah i mean it certainly got people going on i mean it was fun i mean people arguing over baseball it it, i guess that's a better discourse at this point than just getting stuck into this black hole of whining about the lockout and stuff and uh yeah i mean you got to keep it going at some point there's got to be some stuff to talk about because people want to talk about baseball so i mean that's why we put out our prospect list um i know i i originally only wanted to go to 30 but i'm like oh i want to talk about that guy too and that guy and like jacob said there's like these guys outside the third are like well they got this tool that might get them to the big leagues like um this guy might get there so you you wanted to mention those guys and honestly i i cut it off at 50 simply because i i didn't think people would have cared past 50 and of course jacob proved that wrong going to 75 and now i Next year, I'm going to go to at least 100. There you go. Yeah. And shout out the worldwide leader actually talking to baseball stuff. That's probably the main takeaway <laughs> there. Um, and baseball is 150 years old, man. Uh, there's a lot of people rep- to be represented, a lot of generations to get represented. So I get can't get too mad. DeGrom will end up on that list at some point, uh, you know, once his career is over, uh, without a doubt. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just something fun to talk about. Um just need baseball back. Yeah, this this stinks. I don't know. I don't know what else to say anymore about the, the lockout stuff. Just just help us out, man. Baseball's in a good spot. You got great players. Promote your sport. Sign this thing. Let's get rolling already. So then the Mets don't have a fake season when they win the World Series this year. It's a full 162. I don't got to hear anybody. Um, I'm just kidding. Hopefully. But, um, you know, that's everything we have for this week, guys. Uh, we have a couple of really special guests coming to the show uh, over the next week or so. So please be on the lookout for that. We'll have all the latest on the lockout stuff. Uh, more uh, fun Mets content to talk to you. Uh, but until then, don't forget to get Metsmerized. Get Metsmerized! Get Metsmerized!